teaching the master in Israel. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. My beloved brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what our Lord did, brethren and sisters. He taught that master in Israel. What a marvellous conversation that would have been to listen in there, to see that master in Israel get a lesson in spiritual things which he had never contemplated and, brethren and sisters, in his frame of mind, never could. Never could he come to that point of view while he had his frame of mind that he got from the, from the, from the Sanhedrin and from his Pharisaical background. Never could that man grasp those things unless that mind was entirely changed and looked at matters entirely from a heavenly viewpoint. As we noted last time, brothers and sisters, from verse 23 of chapter 2, he was one of those who was attracted to our Lord Jesus Christ because of the miracles which he did at that Passover. And says John, many believed in his name. But he's got to come down to verse 18 of chapter 3, brethren and sisters, and he's got to believe, as we read in the end of that verse, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's what he's got to believe. And you might say, oh yes, we can see how important that is. Well, how important is it? You think about it. It's not just a belief in a name, brethren and sisters. It's a belief in all that that name implies and teaches and what it stands for. To believe in his name as a miracle worker is not enough. To believe in his name, brethren and sisters, as Jesus of Nazareth is certainly not enough. We've got to come to grips with this fact. It's the name of the only begotten of the Father. We've got to know whose he is. Where are his origins? And who it is that he's manifesting? And when we come to grips that we're looking at God's Son, his only begotten Son, brethren and sisters, that he really begot in the womb of Mary and brought him forth upon the earth, then, brethren and sisters, where are your nationalities? Where are your traditions? Where are your national distinctions if you come to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God? Where is his nationality? That's the point, brethren and sisters. And when that is grasped, when that man comes to that level of thinking, then he can start to take in spiritual things and heavenly things. But now he's bogged down to the earth because he believes, brethren and sisters, that God is represented, represented in the national distinctions of Israel. And until he comes to that point, to see that there's God's Son, and when God's Son crucified the flesh upon the cross, and Paul says, though we knew him after the flesh, we know him no more. What's left, brothers and sisters, but God's Son. Now where are your national distinctions? Now where are your traditions, Nicodemus? Where do you stand now? And he was bringing in, brethren and sisters, skillfully to that conviction. This master in Israel, born of the Spirit, before one can enter into the kingdom of God, before one, brethren and sisters, can even see the kingdom, let alone enter, he's got to be born again, born from above. And there's no way known to man that Nicodemus, without this education, could ever have come to that conviction for why should he above all people want to start again? Whose origins, as far as he was concerned, were absolutely pure. 
And so this master in Israel has got to learn these things. And we take out the record from verse 10 where we left off last time. You're a teacher in Israel, says the Lord, and you don't know these things. He was a teacher. Same word, brothers and sisters, that he used of the Lord himself when he says that your teaching comes from God. Well, says the Lord Jesus Christ, you're an authorised teacher of God's chosen people. You're a teacher of Israel. God chose them. God has put you there, so you think, as a teacher of his people. You're a man of great authority and responsibility. And you don't know? Brothers and sisters, where was his pupils if he didn't know? And they were God's people. You think of the indictment upon Nicodemus in those words. The humiliation of that. Not only a question of personal ignorance, but he's a teacher of God's people. That's a grave responsibility, brothers and sisters. A very grave responsibility. When you mark your ballot paper, think of it. And mark it carefully. That when people teach from up here, they teach God's people. And we ought to know what we're talking about if we're up here teaching God's people. Because if the teacher doesn't know, where were the pupils going to be? And you young men in this audience, heed that. Because the teachers you've got today, you might not have tomorrow. And we need, brothers and sisters, ever to have teaching from here that's good and pure and clean and right and that's perceptive of what comes from above. You're a teacher in Israel. God's people. You don't know that. You should have known it, brothers and sisters. He should have known about a birth of the Spirit. He should have known that from the law. He should have known that from Exodus 12 when Gentiles came to the Passover and the law said they were as if they'd been born in the land. How could they be born in the land if they were not born by the Spirit? Weren't they born again? He should have known that from Leviticus 14 when they brought a leper after he'd been cleansed outside the camp and when they brought him back into the camp they shaved him. Ah, you say, well, that wouldn't be very unusual, wouldn't it? They shaved his eyebrows. Never left a single hair on his body. When he came back into the camp, he was like a newborn child. You should have known that, brothers and sisters. When Naaman the Syrian came out of that water, it says he was a leper, and when he was washed in Jordan, his flesh came like the flesh of a little child. Quoting Leviticus 14, he should have known that. He should have known Psalm 87, that men from Egypt, from the Philistines, from the Babylonians, and all over the world, those stinking nations in his view, God says in that Psalm 87, were as though they'd been born in Jerusalem. How could they ever have been that if they weren't born of the Spirit? He should have known it from Isaiah 49, brothers and sisters, when Israel is represented as a woman, standing there with bereft of her children, and a whole group of children charging at her and saying, Mother! And she doesn't know who their father is. He should have worked it out from that. You're a master in Israel and you don't know these things. But brethren and sisters, if there was ignorance with that teacher, there was not an ignorance with the one that was teaching him. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen. Plural is used, isn't it, brethren and sisters? But we'll come to that in a moment. But look at the couplings. Look at the couplings in that verse. We speak, why? Because we know. We testify, Nicodemus. Why? Because we've seen. And people who know and see, brothers and sisters, are in a situation to speak and to testify. There are people who know and can speak. 
They don't always see and can testify. And there's nobody can see and testify unless they know and speak. We may have an academic knowledge of the truth, brothers and sisters, and be able to speak that. But unless we've seen the purpose of God and testify in our lives, what we teach is hollow. The Lord had not only heard, brothers and sisters, and a position to talk about it, he'd seen it and was testifying to Nicodemus in his very presence. There's a beautiful coupling there. And there were others who did the same thing. The question was, we speak. We know. We've seen. Who are the we? Chapter 5. John tells us of the other witnesses. Look at verses 19 and 20 of how the Son is able to speak of the Father and to show the Father. Look how he is able to do it, brothers and sisters. Here's his witness. Chapter 5 of John and verses 19 and 20. We read, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show greater works than those which he may marvel. There's where he got his witness from, brethren and sisters. The Father showed him. It's one thing to read the Bible. And it's one thing to learn that God is one. But it's another thing to learn that he's the father of us all. And that's the point that John is making here. This one entered into the feelings of the father. And the father entered into his feelings. And they were one and they breathed together. He saw him. He saw him, brothers and sisters, because he saw him in his word. He saw the grandeur, the glory. Not only the physical glory of the father, but he saw those attributes of he that executes judgment and righteousness in the earth. He's watching him do it. He doesn't exercise those things in heaven, says Jeremiah. He loveth those things, says Jeremiah. He that executes those things in the earth. The Lord was watching him do it in the very work that he did himself. And the Father was showing him those works. And in the manifestation of his word, in his mind, there was the Father. And because the Son saw him, he did the same things. And he was equipped to witness for him. Verse 33. Ye said unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. He was one of the we. So the Lord was not the only witness, but in verse 33 of John chapter 5, ye said unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. So there's another witness. And as great as that witness was, brethren and sisters, there was one greater still, verse 37, and the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me, Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. So they'd never heard him, and they'd never seen him. And they could never stand before Nicodemus and say, we speak that which we know, and we testify that which we've seen, because they'd never heard his voice, and they'd never seen his shape. And the Lord's not really referring there, brothers and sisters, to a physical form. He's referring to what the Father is substantial, what he's made up of, what his characteristics are, and how they're gloriously balanced. You've never seen that. You've never heard it. And they were in no position to witness of it. But he was. A master in Israel, brethren and sisters, didn't know all that. And coming back to that third chapter of John, oh, look, 
What the Lord did here was absolutely incredible. Look, he says, in verse 12, If I told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? What earthly things was he telling you, brothers and sisters? He was trying to tell you. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Now, if you can't get that into the mind of an interested friend, there's no way that you can ever go on teaching him about the kingdom of God. The first thing that men's got to learn before they come to God is that they're going to die. And the first thing that that master in Israel had to get into his head was that his fleshly background was not. And he couldn't get that into his head. Jesus couldn't get into his head at the beginning of his talk that that man's background come for nothing. That Nicodemus which is born of flesh, you as a Pharisee, is nothing. He couldn't get that into his head. And if you can't believe that, then you're not going to seek another form of thinking. If you believe you've got an immortal soul, you're not going to think about going being in the kingdom of God when Christ comes. Unless we come to the point of view, brothers and sisters, that we're going to corrode into that ground, we will never raise our mind to spiritual things because there'll be no need. Any more than there was a need for him to think about being born again when he was high born. But the Lord is telling him, if you can't get step one, it's no good me pressing on with step two. But he did press on with it because Nicodemus, brothers and sisters, was responding. The Lord knew he would respond. He wouldn't have wasted his time if he didn't. Because as John says, he committed himself to no man except those men, brothers and sisters, that responded to him. And we're going to see in this chapter tonight the question of response. Oh, it's glorious. It really is. There's a couple of gems in this. They may not be altogether obvious, but they're absolutely beautiful. The question of response. That's what God wants, brothers and sisters. A response. Not just simply a fear to learn about him, but a response. You think about that as we move through this chapter. Now, said the Lord, these earthly things and these heavenly things. You can't understand earthly things. You can't accept the negatives. I've got to teach you the positives. And as far as the positives were concerned, brothers and sisters, no man has to send it up to heaven. So where's Nicodemus going to learn about the positives? He cannot accept the negatives because of his background. He doesn't think he needs to be born again. He doesn't think he's flesh. He's Jew. He can't accept that. How's he going to be taught heavenly things? Because there's no one on his Sanhedrin that can teach him. No man has ascended up there. You look at Proverbs 30. Don't lose John chapter 3, of course. You look at Proverbs 30, brothers and sisters. Until this point of time of the Lord Jesus Christ, there hadn't been a man upon the earth who had risen to heaven's viewpoint in these matters as the Lord did. But listen to the words of a man who classified himself among the ignorant, among the simple-minded people. Proverbs 30 and verse 1 is the words of Eber, the son of Jacob. And he said in verse 2, Surely I am more brutish than any man and have not the understanding of a man. He was, to use a modern parlance, a bit thick. He had difficulty in understanding the least of matters. But he admitted it, brethren and sisters. He was humble about that. And he reached to God. And he said in verse 4 or verse 3, I never learned wisdom, nor have I had the knowledge of the holy. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Bound the waters in the garments? 
who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. And here was a man who was nothing like a master in Israel. But he's going to get somewhere near that understanding, brothers and sisters, because he reached for it. He wouldn't have made Nicodemus's bootlace lace on the diplomas they handed out in the colleges of Shammar and Hillel. They wouldn't let him inside the door. He was more brutish than any man. Didn't have any understanding. He'd never learn. But he knew this. But to know anything about God, a man's got to send up. He can't grovel in the dust. He's got to see that there's a wisdom beyond his power to grasp as a man that is divinely inspired. And being divinely inspired, a man has got to reach up and try and understand things above him. And he wants to learn about that God. And because, brothers and sisters, he wants to have a relationship with that God, he looks for his son. What's his name? And what's his son's name? Who's related to him that I might understand him? And he was asking that question in the Proverbs. And here he is. No man ever sent up into heaven. And there's his son. And he's not before a brutish, ignorant man. He's before a brilliant Pharisee. But he wasn't as brilliant as Agur, the son of Jacob, who was poor wretch, was trying to reach unto God because he knew, brothers and sisters, that it's no good a man by the exercise of his intellect or, or gaining any diplomas or letters after his name, you'll never come to understand God. And he reached up and he sought the knowledge of the Most Holy and he sought the knowledge of one who is related to him so that he might have some bridge between himself and God. And there he is before Nicodemus. What's his son's name? Jesus of Nazareth. And he's sitting before this master of Israel and he says, who has ascended up into heaven? No man, but I have. And he had ascended up into heaven, brethren and sisters. Not literally, of course. He went and told Nicodemus, he said, look, Nicodemus, no man hath ascended into heaven, but he that came down from heaven. Of course, those who believe in the pre-existence of Christ delight in that, in that verse. They take it literally, brothers and sisters, and they got you believing in a farce. And they make God a mockery by, by the application of those words. We know, brothers and sisters, that it wasn't the second part of a trinity that came down from heaven. That's the language of manifestation. You've got it all over the Old Testament. Yahweh came down upon Mount Sinai. We read in Exodus 19 and verse 11 and we read it again in the book of Numbers three or four times that he came down before all the people. And again and again it's the language of manifestation and yet the, the great and the mighty God of Israel never left his throne, brothers and sisters. But the angel in his presence came down in the same way that our Lord Jesus Christ came down but even in a greater way than that. He came down in the sense, brothers and sisters, of being born of God. And you know, whilst we might neatly divide the view of pre-existence as against the manifestation and prove that to the outsider, never let us forget this, brethren and sisters, God is spirit. Therefore, that which came upon the Virgin Mary was God. And that which was born of her was God. God in manifestation. And the spirit which bore him, brothers and sisters, did pre-exist. And when he died upon the cross and God brought him out of the tomb and chained him, that's all that existed. And he that came down from above went back where he was before. We talk about the mind of the Father. He was in the mind of the Father. What is the mind of the Father, brothers and sisters? It is the Father. And there is there an incomprehensible greatness that with all 
our teaching, which is correct, we still, brothers and sisters, have a lifetime of trying to comprehend the greatness and the reality of that manifestation. He was the Son of God, and he came down from heaven, and he went on to tell Nicodemus, he's in heaven, which is in heaven. Nicodemus is staring at him, sitting there in that candle-lit room, as it would have been, the lamp-lit room in Jerusalem, staring at him in the flickering light, and he said, I'm in heaven, in a half-dark room, brothers and sisters. Yet he says he's in heaven. Back in chapter 1, in verse 18, John said this, concerning that matter. He said in chapter 1, and verse 18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And when John wrote that, brothers and sisters, he was in the bosom of the Father. He had ascended up on high. And there he was. But he'd really never ever been anywhere else. He'd always in the bosom of the Father. And when the Father nurses the child, brothers and sisters, in the bosom of the Father, and the Son lays there, the nearest thing to the Father's lips is his ear. Morning by morning he wakened my ear to hear and gave him the tongue of the learned. And whilst he gave his back to the smiters, and his hair to, the, the, his hair to those that plucked off the hair and smote him on the cheek, his ear, morning by morning, was wakened by his father. He listened, he heard him. He spoke that which he knew. And because the word drew him to the bosom of the father, even when he's walking around upon the earth, he knew him, saw him, and testified of him. And there he was before Nicodemus, telling him all this. And poor old Nicodemus, struggling to understand these things, and thinking about his blue blood background of the Pharisees, and all the diplomas of the courts of the of the schools of the rabbis that he could boast in, and one of the masters in Israel. He's got to get rid of that, brothers and sisters, and come back right down to square one. Grasp the negatives and then see the necessity for the positives. But you see, that wasn't his only problem. There were many problems in that master of Israel's mind. And he's going to get a staggering lesson. You see, because he thought, brothers and sisters, as I said on last time, because he saw those miracles performed, he worked it out logically. This man's a wonder worker. God is with him. There's no question of it. No man can do these works except God be with him. And God is the God of Israel. He's certainly the God of Israel. And God is about to use those that power to get rid of the Romans. Sure he is. And when he gets rid of the Romans, he'll set up the kingdom. And who's going to be the king? The Jews! And he crept to Jesus at night thinking, brothers and sisters, that perhaps the next day he might be on the Sanhedrin in the millennium. And all else excluded. Nobody of his caste, except his caste, in that kingdom. You're a master in Israel, and you don't know this, but as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You don't know that. In a moment, brothers and sisters, I'm going to show you, and this is the fact, that all the Lord is doing in these verses is simply teaching how to read the Bible. Nothing else. Or there's much implied in it. But it's a simple question of reading. That's all it is. And he couldn't even read. What didn't he know about that serpent being lifted up in the wilderness? Well, if you'd have thought about it, brethren and sisters, under the law of Moses, there were all sorts of sin offerings. 
There was a sin offering for the high priest, a ruler, a commoner, a poor person, a very poor person. And while I haven't mentioned, which he should have known, there was a sin offering for the whole people, a national sin offering. And he should have thought about the time when the people came before Moses and they murmured to Moses. And the law of Moses specifically said that if all the people sin in that way, they should bring a bullock for a sin offering. Why didn't they bring that bullock for a sin offering? Why all of a sudden? There appeared a method of saving brothers and sisters of which the law spake nothing. Why did God adopt a method that had never been heard of before or since? All of a sudden, the brazen serpent is held up and people are saved. Why didn't God operate through the law? That's the first question. You know why, brethren and sisters? Because you see, it was a special, a special disease that was overtaking them. God sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. And there on the ground, brothers and sisters, was the very creature that should have taken Nicodemus's mind back to the Garden of Eden to the origins of death. He didn't understand earthly things, did he? Well, he should have gone back to the origin. And he should have understood that when the people got into a situation where they were being bitten by serpents and dying, the law, brothers and sisters, was powerless. 1 Corinthians 15. The law can't handle mortality cannot wipe away the sting of death, the taint of sin. In First Corinthians 15, the apostle said this about that. First Corinthians 15 and verse 55. He said, O death, where is thy sting? Sting! O grave, he says, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. It's the strength of sin. And here's the serpent, brothers and sisters, stinging the people to death. And the law, all that the law could have ever done for them is to lend strength to the serpent. Not literally, of course. Because when the law was introduced and drew people's minds to thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, it kept telling the people, it is possible, it is possible, it is possible. And because of their misapplication, misunderstanding, it became the strength of sin. When sin's stinging everybody, the law is immobilized. You're a master in Israel. You don't know that? That wasn't all, brothers and sisters. I want now to give you a lesson in Bible reading as he gave Nicodemus a lesson in Bible reading. I would never have read it like this hadn't he directed me to it. I want to use two hands. You've got two hands, you use them. We'll have a look at Numbers 21 and we'll look at John chapter 3. And you just look at this. What did Nicodemus believe? He believed that only the Jews would be saved. The only the chosen race. Well, a master in Israel never read his Bible like this. You listen, brethren and sisters. Keep your pages open together. Listen to these words. We'll read first of all Numbers 21. And listen to what I emphasize. Verse 6. And Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people 
and they bit the people. Now listen to this. And much people of Israel died. You ought to underline those words in your Bible. That's what he didn't read. Much people of Israel died. In the next, in the 8th verse, brethren and sisters, we read this. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that who? Everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a certain serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now read John 3, verse 14. Let's read it again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever, whosoever, Nicodemus, and you can see the Lord, his eyes boring through that master in Israel's head. Whosoever, any man, everyone, he didn't need to tell him, brethren and sisters, the negative, that much people of Israel died. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent his Son, sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Fancy the master of Israel listening to that. You've never read Numbers 21 like that, A lot of your class died. A lot of your class died. But I didn't, God, Jesus says, God didn't care where they came from. Whoever looked, any man, everyone, whosoever, the world, you're a master in Israel and you can't read your Bible. Incredible. It was just a clear teaching of the scripture in words, not in anything else. They were all there. And he never read it like that, brothers and sisters. He never read it like that. What an incredible thing. Now I'll show you that by extension. There is only twice that the Lord ever refers to himself, other than in John chapter 3, there's only twice that he ever speaks about being lifted up. Now you follow this carefully, because there's a logical sequence to this. Why was it that the people were saved in the wilderness from the sting of the serpent? It wasn't because Moses made a brazen serpent. The record doesn't say that. It says because they looked. They looked upon it. And there's two Hebrew words used. They looked and they beheld, the authorised translates them. One means to see, and the other one means to consider intently. They were to know, and they were to perceive. And their faith saved them. They looked at it, they actually saw it, and then they considered it intently, because they would have seen, brothers and sisters, the significance of it. That is, all those who I believe were saved. They wouldn't have seen the significance of the Son of Man here. But they would have perceived, I believe, the lesson spiritually. That their problem was the flesh, the serpent, the brass, the sting, death. And when men look up and they recognise the negative, 
they're in a position to be taught heavenly things. When they start to realise that's where they're going, that's what flesh gets you, be you Jew or Gentile. When you come to that realisation and look up, then you can hear about heavenly things. But if they never looked at that servant of brass, which many of Israel did not, they perished. Nicodemus, go home and have another look at your genealogy. When you're finished with Abraham, keep going. You'll land in Adam. That's what he was telling him, brothers and sisters. Never mind about Abraham. Keep going back and back and back and back. Till you come to Adam and see what happened to him. And see what happened to him with the serpent. And tell me about your law, whether it can handle that situation, Nicodemus. And if your law can't handle it, and if you've got to go back to Adam, who is the first man, then God doesn't care who he is. doesn't matter any man, whosoever. You're all from Adam. Go on and learn about your origin. If I told you earthly things you don't understand, how can I teach you heavenly things? Marvellous, brethren and sisters. Now I'm going to show you one of those places. The, other, the first place the Lord makes reference to himself being lifted up and he says, you'll do it, he says to the Jews. You will do it. And when you lift up the Son of Man, he says, you will know that I am the Son of Man. But the occasion I want to show you is in John chapter 12. And we'll go to the logical sequence of this story. It's a marvellous record. It's the 12th chapter of John. And this is the only other occasion other than those first two where the Lord mentions himself as being lifted up. Look at the occasion, brethren and sisters, in verse 20 of John chapter 12. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. So these Greeks, they wouldn't have gone to someone from Judea. All they would have got from someone in Judea, brothers and sisters, is probably what the Mohammedans do when you walk past them. They wouldn't breathe your dust because you're an infidel. That would have been the attitude of a Judean. So these poor Greeks who want to see Jesus pick out a Galilean. He's not so high and mighty. What does Philip do? Rush off to Jesus? Oh no, he's got a problem. He's got to go to the Lord to represent Greeks. And he's going to be like Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. He can look around for somebody to go with him. He couldn't go to the Lord with that in front of this crowd. People would have seen him talking to those Greeks. Could he represent them to the Lord? Or oh, he couldn't do that. So he goes to Andrew. And the two of them pluck up enough courage to tell Jesus that these people want to see them. And what does the Lord say in verse 20 and 23? Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He saw it coming, brothers and sisters. He is two Jews approaching him on behalf of Greeks. The hour has come. What hour? The hour for which the Lord was destined, brothers and sisters. The hour when he would die for all men. And Jesus saw in this little cameo, which no one else would have perceived, of two Jews approaching him on behalf of a group of Greeks, the very purpose which he came upon the earth. For John said, did he not? That he came upon, that he not died for this nation only, but that he should bring together all the children of God in one. And the hour had come, brothers and sisters, for that barrier to break down. Ever so small here, but it was breaking down. And the Lord said in verse 26, if any man, 
Where's that language coming from? If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honour. That's the language of Numbers 21, isn't it? Any man, everyone. Look at verse 32. And I, well, let's take verse 31. Now is the judgment of this Jewish cosmos. Now shall the prince of this Jewish world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. If I be lifted up, I will draw everyone, any man, everyone who looks upon that servant of brass, lives. What's the natural sequence of the ideas being presented, brothers and sisters? It's this. What did that serpent represent but the power of sin? What did the brass represent but the flesh in which the principle of sin resides as an evil principle exciting the lust, the passion and the crime? Didn't it represent that? When that was lifted up in earth as that serpent was, powerless to bite, like the ones on the ground were not powerless. It was powerless and its power had been controlled. And the serpent on that there was moulded, brothers and sisters, to a divine pattern. And it was moulded in such a way that it was powerless to sting. And when that serpent was lifted up, there was our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he breathed his last upon the cross, he died. He died. And when he died, he lost his humanity. And when he died, he lost his humanity, didn't he? All right, he might have gone into the ground. He did go into the ground. A corpse. He came out a mortal man. God changed him. But for all intents and purposes, humanity was gone. And when all eyes came around to that cross, they didn't see humanity, brothers and sisters. It was expiring. The Roman centurion's eyes came around and he said, Truly, that's the Son of God. Where's his national distinction? Where's his genealogy now? And when we go back through that genealogy, brothers and sisters, we only have the one line. Name of the only begotten Son of God. That's him. And there it stops. And everyone loses their personality. Everyone loses their nationality. Everyone loses their historical tradition. They're dead. And we stand shorn of them all. We go nowhere. We're nowhere to go. And the master in Israel had never seen that. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, he said, will draw all men unto me. You know, brethren and sisters, that word for pole that was used, when Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, the Hebrew word nisai, it means a banner. Something you would lift up like a, a standard that could be seen by everybody. Look how Isaiah uses it in his 11th chapter, brothers and sisters. Look how he uses it. And this is in this 11th chapter which speaks of the Son of God coming forth as the twig out of the stump of Jesse, verse 1. But more importantly, as a branch growing up from Jesse's roots. It's all a question of origins, brothers and sisters. Where did he really come from? Well, he really didn't come as a shoot out of a stump. That was only temporary. The real Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, the one that we know, who we don't know after the flesh no more, he came out of the root of Jesse. He's the name of the only begotten Son of God. And in verse 10 we read, 
in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. The twig is gone. It is gone. In that day, there shall only be a root of Jesse. And, says the prophet, which shall stand for an ensign to the people. Nisai to the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, brethren and sisters, and on Mount Zion, the city of, of the great king, on David's throne, when they lift up the Lord Jesus Christ for all the earth to see, not a crucified Lord, brothers and sisters, no way, but a glorious Lord, not the, the twig out of the stub of Jesse, no way. He was made after the seed of David according to the flesh, but the flesh is not there. It's not there anymore. It's immortalized flesh. It's not seen now as the repository of sin. It's not like that anymore. It doesn't know any of those promptings. And when they lift him up on a pole again, and all the Gentile eyes turn around, they see the root of Jesse. And they know now that there is the name of the only begotten Son of God. And the Master in Israel, I've never seen that. In Revelation 5, which we cannot turn to now, when John had the scrolls open, which speak of the unfolding history of which God is the divine controller. As John had those scrolls unfolding history before the people, he wept because no man could, could open those scrolls. And he says it twice. He said, I wept much because no man could open those scrolls. And the angel said unto him, Weep not, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root, the root of Jesse hath prevailed. Still no man. That's what prevailed, brethren and sisters. God's prevailed. It's his son that's left. Nothing else. That's where it begins and ends. No man, says John, could open it. But he says, don't worry. The root of David has prevailed. And he has. And when he comes to be lifted up again, every eye will be focused on him. And that's what they'll see. That's what they should have seen in the wilderness. But if they couldn't see it in the negative, if they can't be taught earthly things, they'll never see it in the positive because they'll never understand heavenly things. That's what the Lord was trying to tell him. Isaiah puts it in the positive. Numbers was putting it in the negative. The Lord took him back to the negative first. If he can't see it like that, as a serpent lifted up, he'll never see him lifted up as the root of Jesse. What a marvellous thing that is, brothers and sisters. What a lesson for the master in Israel. What a lesson. When we come back to that third chapter of John, the Lord then draws upon that lesson. Oh, it's a marvellous lesson. It really is. As he draws out the implications of that lesson, speaks of verse 15 of the whole world. This salvation, he says, is to whosoever has faith in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And still, of course, with his mind fixed in Numbers 21, as he had that master in Israel's attention riveted in Numbers 21, when God saved any man and everyone, brethren and sisters, he didn't save him to eternal life. That was but the shadow. Nicodemus has got the substance. It's not going to be any temporary salvation here. Why? For God so loved the world. You know, you wonder, in John's record, 
whether we've got the whole record. You wouldn't be surprised, would you, brethren and sisters, if Jesus paused and said after that, do you love the world, Nicodemus? Nicodemus hated it. Didn't have a mind like God, brethren and sisters. God so loved the world. Just make a little note of this. That's the first occasion that John ever uses his Greek word agapeo. Not the first time agape is used, first time John uses it. And it's John's pen above all other pens, brothers and sisters, that draws out the implications of that word. And isn't it, I believe, consistent with John's mighty expansive mind that when the first time he penned that word, it should be related to the largest context. The biggest thing. God just doesn't love. He loves the world. We love God, says the Apostle, because he first loved us. This is the constraining factor, brethren and sisters, isn't it? It's the constraining factor in our lives. It's not because we obey God because we fear him or because we've got a knowledge of law or because we think we can keep law. We do it because we are constrained by the love of Christ to do it who manifested the love of the Father. And so in John chapter 3 and verse 16, which we sometimes shy away from because the churches use it. Forget the churches. Look at that verse, brothers and sisters. Here's a love which is so expansive, it takes in the world and it gives, brothers and sisters, to the very last degree. He gave his only begotten son. You think about that. There's no... The largeness of that, brethren and sisters, there's nothing else that takes any place with that. That's the largest thing. He loved the whole world. But he gave who? His only begotten son. Can't go any further than that. And because it's the largest thing, everything else flows from that. Romans 8. Don't lose John chapter 3. Look at Romans 8. The Apostle points out that when God gave in that measure, brethren and sisters, everything flowed from that. So he says in verse 32 of Romans chapter 8, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What the Apostle is saying, brethren and sisters, the most difficult of all the gifts to give then was his son. And he says, if he didn't spare him, never forget that word, it'll come up again in a minute, if he didn't spare that boy and gave him, brothers and sisters, unflinchingly in his love for the world, what other gift won't he give men? And when you get that into your head and into your heart, you walk through life with confidence, brothers and sisters, not a confidence in your strength, but if God did that, what won't he give us? There's nothing he won't give us. He won't give us anything and everything if only we believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's nothing that can stop us. And so the Apostle in that great verse of exaltation speaks about that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And slipping down a few verses he said, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Same thing. And if the love of Christ and the love of God are synonymous, of course they are. If God gave that boy in love, he'll give us anything, brothers and sisters, because the most difficult gift of all has been given. 
comes to, rather the Lord here is trying to get into the head of this master Israel. But listen to this. This is a question of response that we're talking about, isn't it? Now look at the death way John does this. In chapter 3 he says, look at this, brothers and sisters. Just have a look at this. Why do you think that John should make reference to his only begotten son? Oh yes, of course. It's to tell us that he is his only begotten son. But you see, brothers and sisters, that is an allusion to the sacrifice of Isaac. Now I want to show you something. In Genesis 22, it's all a question of response. When Abraham took his son and with a towering faith was prepared to sacrifice him and God stayed his hand. We read in verse 15, brethren and sisters, and the angel of Yahweh called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time. Wasn't going to talk about earthly things. And said, by myself have I sworn, says Yahweh, for because thou hast done this thing and has not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee. Do you know what you're reading, brethren and sisters? Do you understand what you're reading? I didn't until about 12 months ago. We're reading about Yahweh responding to a man giving his son, whom he spared. Is it unreasonable? that over the centuries of time that he should bring forth his son, whom he didn't spare, and call for your response and my response. Is that unreasonable? When we look towards the annals of time, we see him in heaven, calling out of heaven, responding out of heaven to a man's faith. Because you've done this thing, I will do that. And he walked away with his son alive. That's what John's trying to tell us, brethren and sisters. That's what he's trying to tell Nicodemus. God's son was caught in a thicket. When Abraham got his son back, he turned around and there was a ram caught in a thicket. You trace that word thicket and you will be absolutely astonished. And I wouldn't dare even begin to trace it with you now because it would take the rest of the night and more to tell you about that. But to take you through, brothers and sisters, the law and the prophets and into the Psalms and the sacrifices all bound to the altar where that Hebrew word is used. Caught! Can't get away, can you? And how the prophets uses the term for the entanglement of man's sins and there's our Lord caught in your sins and my sins that God couldn't spare. And he says to you and I, if I responded to a man's faith who got his son back, is it unreasonable that he should call upon all men everywhere to respond to him whose son didn't get spared? It's a marvellous record, brethren and sisters. It's a wonderful record. That's why Paul, in Hebrews 11 and verse 17, called Isaac his only begotten when he really literally wasn't. Because that story in Genesis 22 is not primarily about Abraham's faith, brothers and sisters. It's about God's sacrifice. That's what it's about. Abraham's faith, as magnificent as it was, is incidental to the lesson of that chapter. And God responded to a man's faith. And he calls upon the man's faith 
to respond to his love. That's not unreasonable. It's what we would expect. And then he goes on and he talks in, in John about the motive for sending that son. What was God's motive in sending that son? Well, in verse 17, we read this. For God didn't send his son, says John, into the world to judge it. That wasn't his motive. But that the world, through him, might be saved. Now, I want you to follow this very carefully because I'll tell you in broad outline what John's going to do now in recording our Lord's words. And then we'll follow it a little bit more in detail. What he's going to do is this. He's going to tell Nicodemus why God sent his son. And he's going to tell him why he didn't send him. He's going to tell him that God didn't send his son into the world so that men might be judged. So that by contrast, they're shown to be sinners. That's what I want. Then I'll show them what they're sinners and I'll judge. That's not the motive at all. He sent him in the world to save. Then he's going to point out, brethren and sisters, that even though God didn't send the Lord with that motive, men were judged by the Lord's coming. God didn't intend it like that, but that's what happened. But that they were self-condemned. And then he's going to use a dramatic illustration as to how they were self-condemned to prove that it was never God's motive to do that. There's a lesson in that for all of us, brothers and sisters. Application to the scripture sometimes seems harsh and unjust. But for men of perfection who love their brethren and sisters, there is always, every time, without fail, if they are men of God, the motive to help. But it will never, ever, ever, if it's from heaven, it will never, ever, ever, initially be seen like that until you'll patiently wait for it to work out and you'll see that really was the motive. If, my son, men are motivated by the power of God's word, if they're not, then they don't believe on the name of the only begotten son of the Father. But if they are, whatever they do, that'll be their motive. But it won't always appear like that to you. Any more than the people that the Nicodemus. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's what Nicodemus wanted, brethren and sisters. He wanted that world condemned. Oh, he didn't do that. He sent him to, to save it. Do you know, one of the titles of our Lord Jesus Christ was the saviour of the world. Do you know where we learn that? We learn it in many places. But do you know where else we learn it? Not very far from here. Over the next page of your Bible, brothers and sisters, in verse 42, in John chapter 4 and verse 42, And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. Who was it that saw that? Certainly wasn't Nicodemus. Because he, he believed that Messiah was the Saviour of the Pharisees. No, brothers and sisters, it took the men of Samaria to see that. You see, nobody wanted them they were mongrels. And that just wasn't, brothers and sisters, an epithet of contempt. They were mongrels. They were mongrel bred. They had a mongrel religion. 
And everyone saw them as mongrels. It took them to understand he was the saviour of the world. Because they knew they were mongrels. They recognised the negative and now they could see the positive. They'd heard of earthly things, they lived it. Now they were looking at heavenly things. It took fruit like that to see that. Nicodemus couldn't see that. He should have. He should have seen that. He, he saw God as the Holy One of Israel. Oh yeah. He saw him like that. But he'd forgotten that there was another title of God called the God of all the earth. And those two titles, brothers and sisters, were not separate from each other. They are together in Isaiah 54 and verse 5. The Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth, shall he be called. They're together. But Nicodemus would put a bit of cardboard over half that sentence. The only thing was the Holy One of Israel. He would never look at the word, the God of all the earth. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, brothers and sisters, but that the world through him might be saved. Now John elaborates on that. As we sometimes do, we say to a brother and sister, look, you've misunderstood me. I didn't mean that at all. I didn't intend what you think. And then we elaborate to try and win that brother or sister. Not to preach our own righteousness very often, but to win that person over and to show them that we really do love people and that we want to help them and we've got a pains to tell them. That's what God does here. He wants us to know, brothers and sisters, that he does love us. He does love the world. Look, he says in verse 18, and he opens up this, this, this matter of his motive. And he said, look, he that believeth on him is not condemned. And that's what God sent him into the world for, to be believed on. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Oh, I can condemn him. Not my motive. He's self-defense. If we can't understand it there, turn to John chapter 12 and verse 47, brothers and sisters. <coughs> Listen to it here. Perhaps this might be a little bit plainer. Verse 46, we can take it from. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If any man hear my words and believe not, I don't judge him, says the Lord. I judge him not. I do not judge him. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken. That shall judge him in the last day. Simple as that, brothers and sisters. And if we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord will not be there in that day with a desire and a thrill to judge us to death. That's not his motive. God is not willing that any would perish. He wants us to be saved. But if we will go our own way, which we often do, if we consistently do that, brothers and sisters, all he's got to do is say, look, I said that. I can't deny myself. I can't bend that for your sake. I said that. You know I said that. I don't judge you. That judges you. You've judged yourself. Your actions, my actions, your thoughts, my thoughts. They're our own judges, brothers and sisters. God does not desire us to do that. His motive is altogether different. Now, did you understand that? Well, let John give you a dramatic illustration of that. What a dramatic illustration. Look what he says. 
Verse 19. This is the condemnation. In other words, now here comes your illustration of self-condemnation. This is the illustration of self-condemnation. This is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now before we open up John's illustration, let's just make one point here, brothers and sisters, that John says, men agape darkness. So you see, it's not really the whole world that God loves. Because there is darkness in this world. And that's what men love. God doesn't love that world, brothers and sisters. He loves the world into which light has come. This is the condemnation that light is coming to the world. He loves the world that responds. You don't love darkness. We read in another place in John's writing that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride of life, is not of the Father. He doesn't love that world. He loves the whole world if they're walking with the light. But where darkness remains, that's what men love. And what men love, God doesn't. That's true, brothers and sisters, and that's what John is talking about. So we've got to put things into perspective. Now, what's he talking about? Light. Well, let me tell you this, and this is something which I haven't dreamed up, but John himself, by drawing together all his own symbolism, what he's saying is this, very simply, and you listen carefully to what he's saying. Light's coming to the world, and men saw it coming, and they raced into the shadows and didn't want to be seen in that light. And the con- that's the condemnation. They can walk into the light. God wants them to. But they choose to stay in the darkness. It's not that God didn't said, well, I'm not going to shine there or shine here. He shone on the world and men raced where they could see a shadow. They didn't want to stand in God's light. And they do find shadows in this world, brothers and sisters. They won't find it in the world to come of which we speak, but they find it today. And they run into those shadows. What John is doing to illustrate the basis of his of self-condemnation is giving us a, a drawing out the implications of the creation. Now I'm going to use the illustration which I've drawn from all of John's writing on this issue. And if I were to turn them all up, you would read you would read them identical to that as you've just read it in John chapter 12. Time and again, John makes this point. Now then what happened? In the beginning, the earth was without form and void. And darkness covered the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And he divided the light from the darkness. In other words, brethren and sisters, it was only by the manifestation of the light that men were given a choice at all. Light made the choice between light and darkness possible. It didn't dispel all the darkness. It just divided light from the darkness and made the choice possible. It was God's motive that you would choose light. Why? Because the next point that John makes in his writings is this. 
that everything God ever did, he done in the light. God never worked in the dark. John's going to finish with that point. So that when God made the world, the light, and he made all the verdure and the fishes and the beasts of the earth and everything that he'd made, he did it, brethren and sisters, in the daytime. There were no such thing with God as the works of darkness. God only worked in the light. But you see, there were two aspects of that light, as John says. And this is marvellous. Because in Genesis 1 and verse 16, which we've got no need to turn to, because you know what it says. He made the lights, the lesser lights, to rule the night, and the greater light to rule the day. The word margin for rule is to have dominion. And in the fourth day, brothers and sisters, the fourth day, he manifested in the heavens the light of the sun. But I want you to know this, and this is critical to John's argument. It was not the sun that made a day. Because when the sun became manifested in the heavens, it was the fourth day. There was already day one, there was already day two, and there was already day three. The sun did not create the day. But it was given, brothers and sisters, that it might have dominion over that day. Now turn back to John chapter 1. Look at the point John makes about that. He speaks about John the Baptist, whom he said in verse 7, this John the Baptist came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now the point that John is making here is that there is two forms of light, two aspects of it. There's only one light really, but two aspects of it. There was God's light, which was already enlightening the earth before ever the sun came. And when the sun came, he focalised all that he was ever in that light. There wasn't a different light. It was the same light focalised in that sun and it ruled the day which had already been going for three days before. So John's next point is this. He was in the world. There was already light before he came. And the world was made by him. Of course it was. Because God made the world by light. But the world didn't know him. Why? Because he came under his own home. Verse 11. It's in the Greek, his own house. And his own received him not. Now this is what John is saying. Good illustration to use that Bible. That's the world. And God enlightened the world like that for three days. It was a light. It wasn't darkness. It was darkness there, of course. But God made a choice. He said, you didn't have a choice. Men scurried into darkness. But the world is bathed in light. On the fourth day, he makes a sun which was the focalisation of that light. Same thing. So when the sun came into the world like that and shone down the world, he found men in the world who didn't belong there. They were in his house. It was his house, not theirs. Because the sun didn't make that day. It came to rule it. 
That's an illustration of self-condemnation, brethren and sisters. There were men living in God's world that shouldn't be there. And when the light was concentrated and shone upon them, the same light which they said they were walking in, when it shone upon them, they shot into darkness. And it was like the Lord knocking on the door of his own house, opening up and finding squatters in there who didn't belong. And when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and the word of God, brothers and sisters, that's his name in the book of Revelation. His name should be called the word of God. He will look upon us with his eyes and we'll see him for what he is and his eyes will light us up. We'll either belong in that light or we won't. We'll either be seen, brothers and sisters, who have always been walking in that light or be caught somewhere in darkness. We'll either be in the house or we'll be squatters. We really don't belong there. And he won't have to tell us that, really. We'll just stand there, self-condemned. If you went into someone's house and took up residence there while they're away and they come and knock on the door and open up, you're caught. Doesn't belong to you, that house. That's John's illustration. And so he puts the two together. The light came into the world and found men in darkness and they didn't belong to his world. And it was like him going into his own home and finding squatters. And putting the two together, Paralleling like that, he illustrates his meaning. There, brothers and sisters, is a classic and dramatic illustration of self-condemnation. Never forget that the Son didn't make the day. God did. The Son came to rule it. That's magnificent. Now coming back to John chapter 3, John concludes this dissertation, brothers and sisters, along these lines. In verse 20, I want you to notice this. He's speaking about everyone, whosoever, but now you see, he turns the figure around. He says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deed should be reproved. His deed, plural, everyone. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light. That's his deed, singular. You see, Maybe that God does love the world. And it's true, Nicodemus, that whosoever believeth in him should be saved. But there are many men doing many evil things. There's only really one man who is practicing the singular truth. Isn't that marvellous? And Nicodemus was looking at him. And all those in him, brethren and sisters, are included among the he, singular, that does the truth. And all those in the darkness are included among everyone that's practising all sorts of evil. And even the two words in the Greek for deeds are different. One means to be miserable and little and evil and is in the plural and the other one means the truth, the singular. You're either one or the other. And God loves the world and everyone who believes will be saved as long as he's in him who does the truth. But if you're not, you're numbered among the multitude who practice evil. That is the Lord's word, brethren and sisters. Now he finishes like this. But he that doeth truth 
cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And Nicodemus had to go back to origins. And he had to see God shaping the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Elohim, hearkening to the voice of his word, brothers and sisters, went to their marvellous works. And when they finished, as Job says, all the sons of God shouted for joy. And the morning stars sang for the glory of it all. And we are the living witnesses. Besmirched though the world is, brothers and sisters, we are the witnesses to the genius of the lamb. But all of that was done in the light. Just as the deeds of men and women who endeavour to save their brethren and sisters and sacrifice, and that's the chief word, brethren and sisters, to sacrifice self. So the glorious are their works, exquisite to be seen, beautifully wrought in their characters, lovely, altogether beautiful, because they're wrought in God, in the light, not in the dark. And that's what he's telling this master in Israel who didn't know the truth. And there he's sitting there, shaking and shivering in his boots. Because he went down on the record of he that came to Jesus at night. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a lesson for that master in Israel. You know, Jeremiah said concerning Israel, my people have no knowledge. They are sottish children, he said. For I beheld the heavens and the earth, but they were dark. And there was no light, and the earth was without form and void. Jeremiah 4, verse 22 describing Nicodemus' world in the terms of the creation before light. But says the apostle concerning us, brethren and sisters, we're not the children of the night, we're the children of the day. That's what he told the Thessalonians. And he told the Ephesians that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And there's God's children made in the light. And there's Israel, brethren and sisters, in the terms of Jeremiah. I beheld the heavens and the earth. They were out form and void. And describing them as the creation of God before the light. And they groveled in that dark. And when the sun came and focalized the light that had been for there for four millenniums, caught them all in the wrong world. Didn't belong. Caught them all in the wrong house. They didn't belong. And he's coming to this house, brethren and sisters. To our house at Enfield. And who belongs and who doesn't belong? That's the burning question. The light will shine in this hall and it will shine in all our hearts and God will give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then we'll know, brothers and sisters, if our face is like his face, we belong. And if it's not like his face, we do not belong. And if we want to know whether our face is like his face, it's a very easy test. It's abroad in the earth. God has made the division, brothers and sisters, and men go on perpetuating that division. And you can see it easy. And one is the self-sacrificing person, and the other one is selfish. And that's the difference. And when we're allowed, when we allow ourselves to be laid down in the service of our Heavenly Father, for the sake of others, we're in that light. And when we don't, and we serve ourselves, in all our ways, finding for ourselves Rest here upon the earth. Lavishing upon ourselves every form of attention, brethren and sisters. Buying everything that money can buy. When we eat these things up for ourselves, then we're in the darkness. And the light will shine. And we will see who is with God and who is not. And I'm telling you, brethren and sisters, we are at the end. 
If I'm any judge of Bible prophecy, I think we're here. And I think within weeks, if not within months, if not within days, and I mean it, I think we are at the end. And I think it's time all of us walked into that life and to find that we're looking into that life and belonging to God's world, brothers and sisters. Let us never be caught out. Let us ever remember this. It is not God's motive that we should be judged. It is not God's desire. It is God's love that we should be saved. That's what it is. And we may be masters in his love. But if we don't know these things, brethren and sisters, we are of all men most miserable. Let us press on together. And when I say that, you'll learn that reason, brothers and sisters, very, very, very shortly. I'm telling you, there's a crisis of such magnitude that's coming upon us that will grind us into dust unless we stand together. And I mean that with all my heart and soul. Because we are at the end. And if we stick together and walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse us from all sin, brothers and sisters, and we shall be in that day lit up with the glory of God as the stars, as the morning stars, and as the sons of God, we will shout for joy.